Hello, this is Father John Arthur Orr, Associate Pastor at Holy Ghost Catholic Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. This is our 25th program on Man and Woman, He Created Them, A Theology of the Body, the Wednesday Catechesis of Pope John Paul II, from 1979 to 1984. Let us recall the words of the Sermon on the Mount, to which we are turning in this present cycle of our Wednesday reflections. You have heard says the Lord, that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, whoever looks at a woman to desire her in a reductive way has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 and 28. The man whom Jesus addresses here is precisely historical man, the one whose beginning and theological prehistory we have traced in the earlier series of analyses. Most directly, he is the one who listened with his own ears to the Sermon on the Mount, but together with him, he is also every other man placed before that moment of history, whether in the immense expanse of the past or in the expanse equally vast of the future. To this future in front of the Sermon on the Mount belongs our present, our contemporary age as well. This man is in some way each man, every one of us. Both the man of the past and also the man of the future can be the one who knows the positive commandment, you shall not commit adultery, as the content of the law. See Romans chapter 2 verses 22 and 23. But he can just as well be the one who, according to Romans, has this commandment only written in his heart. Romans chapter 2 verse 15. In the light of the foregoing reflections, he is the man who has, from his beginning, gained a precise sense of the meaning of the body already before crossing the threshold of his historical experiences in the very mystery of creation given that he emerged from it as man and woman he is historical man who at the beginning of his earthly drama found himself inside the knowledge of good and evil by breaking the covenant with his creator he is male man who knew the woman, his wife, and knew her several times, and she conceived and gave birth. See Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. According to the Creator's plan, which went back to the state of original innocence, see Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, chapter 2, verse 24. In his Sermon on the Mount, especially in the words of Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 and 28, Christ turns exactly to this man. He turns to the man of a definite moment in history and together with him to all human beings belonging to the same human history. He turns, as we already observed, to the inner man. The words of Christ have an explicit anthropological content. They touch those perennial meanings that constitute an adequate anthropology. Through their ethical content, these words at the same time constitute such an anthropology and demand, so to speak, that man enters into his full image. Man who is flesh and 
who as male remains through his body and his sex in relation with woman, this is in fact also what the expression you shall not commit adultery indicates, must, in the light of these words of Christ, find himself in his interior, in his heart. The heart is the dimension of humanity with which the sense of the meaning of the human body and the order of this sense is directly linked. We are thinking here both of the meaning that we have called spousal in the foregoing analysis, as well as the one we called generative. What order is at issue? Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 and 28 indicates a further dimension. This part of our considerations must provide an answer to precisely this question, an answer that must reach not only the ethical but also the anthropological reasons. These two remain, in fact, in a reciprocal relation. For now, in a preliminary way, we should establish the meaning of the text of Matthew chapter 5, verse 27 and 28, the meaning of the expressions used in it and their reciprocal relation. Adultery, which is what the commandment quoted above directly refers to, signifies the violation of the unity in which man and woman can unite only as spouses, so closely that they are one flesh. Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. Adultery is what a man commits if he unites in this way with a woman who is not his wife. Adultery is also what a woman commits if she unites in this way with a man who is not her husband. One must draw the conclusion that adultery in the heart, committed by a man when he looks at a woman to desire her, signifies a clearly defined interior act. We are dealing with a desire directed, in this case, by the man toward a woman who is not his wife, for the sake of uniting with her as if she were. That is, to use once again the words of Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, in such a way that the two are one flesh. Such a desire, as an interior act, expresses itself through the sense of sight, that is, with a look as in the case of David and Bathsheba, to use an example taken from the Bible, see Second Samuel chapter 11, verse 2. The relation of desire with the sense of sight was particularly emphasized in Christ's words. These words do not say clearly whether the woman, the object of desire, is the wife of another, or simply not the wife of the man who looks at her in this way. She can be the wife of another or also not bound by marriage. We must rather intuit who she is by basing ourselves especially on the expression that defines adultery precisely as what the man has committed in his heart with his look. One can correctly draw the conclusion from this that such a look of desire directed toward one's own wife is not adultery in the heart, precisely because the man's relevant interior act refers to the woman who is his wife, in relation to whom adultery cannot take place. If the conjugal act as an exterior act, in which the two unite 
in such a way that they become one flesh is legitimate in the relationship between the man in question and the woman who is his wife, then also the interior act in the same relationship is analogously in conformity with ethics. Nevertheless, that desire indicated by the expression, whoever looks at a woman to desire her, has its own biblical and theological dimension, which we must not neglect to clarify here. Although this dimension is not directly shown by the concrete expression of Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 and 28, taken by itself, still it is deeply rooted in the overall context, which refers to the revelation of the body. We must go back to this context so that Christ's appeal to the heart, to the inner man, may ring out in the whole fullness of of its truth. The statement quoted from the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5, verses 27 and 28, has at root an indicative character, that Christ turns directly to the man as to the one who looks at a woman to desire her, does not mean that his words, in their ethical sense, do not refer also to the woman. Christ expresses himself in this way to illustrate with a concrete example how one should understand the fulfillment of the law in accord with the meaning that God, the legislator, gave to it, and further, how one must understand that superabounding of justice in the man who observes the sixth commandment of the Decalogue. When he speaks in this way, Christ wants us not to dwell on the example in itself, but also to enter into the statement's full ethical and anthropological sense. If the statement has an indicative character, this means that if we follow its footsteps, we can reach an understanding of the general truth about historical man, valid also for the theology of the body. The next stages of our reflections will have the goal of bringing us closer to an understanding of this truth. And with these words, our Holy Father, Pope John Paul II, brings to a conclusion his 25th Catechesis, Man and Woman, He Created Them. We're using the edition translated by Professor Michael Waldstein, to whom we're so indebted. This 25th Catechesis of Pope John Paul II focuses our attention in great part on the Sermon on the Mount. We find the Sermon on the Mount in the Gospel, in the New Testament, of the Holy Scripture, especially Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 and 28. That's the passages Pope John Paul II is focusing on right now in this 25th Catechesis on man and woman, he created them a theology of the body. It goes like this. You shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, whoever looks at a woman to desire her, and the Pope adds in a reductive way, or Waldstein does, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. This reduction by desire is not a wholesome desire. Husbands and wives should have a desire for each other. Be fruitful and multiply. That's part of our marching orders from the garden, from the beginning. But there is a possessive desire which is demeaning, which in the Holy Father's words or Waldstein's words is reductive, makes less than actual. 
Remember Schmeagle or Gollum. I always get those personalities confused from the Lord of the Rings. My precious. My precious. And so we see the materialism and the bad sort of possession, the desire that character had for the ring. When our Lord gives his Sermon on the Mount, three chapters from Matthew, really, the Pope's just focusing on two verses here, it's like a stump speech. It's his taking the the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, to the next level. If you remember the cook, the chef, Emiro Lagasse, he throws those spices in, he says, bam, he takes it up a notch. Well, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, takes the Decalogue up a notch and not only makes it more demanding, but gives us the grace we need to fulfill it, to be those blessed people who are pure of heart. So now it's not only not to do a sinful act, not to commit adultery, but now not even to have such a desire in your heart. He's already committed adultery with her in his heart. How? Through the eyes, through the senses. So Pope John Paul II focuses on that one of our senses. So often, first we'll covet our neighbor's wife, and then we commit the adultery. Now, just because the scripture or the tradition of the church or the pope are saying not to covet your neighbor's wife or not to commit adultery doesn't mean the contrawise is no less true. Thou shalt not covet the neighbor's husband. The Spanish has a beautiful expression for the ninth commandment, not to covet your neighbor's wife. It's not to have impure desires. And for the sixth commandment, not to commit impure acts. So... The Spanish is better, I think, in that regard. Because when I would teach the kids in the school, the clever ones would say, well, well, Father, I'm not married, and she's not married, so hey, we can do whatever we want. I said, well, no, that's fornication. And the Pope does not address fornication in this passage. He's focusing on adultery. And he spells it out. He says just what adultery is in his understanding. Adultery is the violation of the unity in which only a man and woman can unite as spouses so closely that they are one flesh. And he refers us to Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. So there's no reference in the Holy Father's lexicon here to the holy marriage. Adultery, one or both of the people committing the crime are married. If they're both married, but to other people, it's adulterous. If only one of them is married, it's adultery on that person's part, but it's fornication, it's impure act, it's to sin with the body against the intention of our Creator who made us male and female, who made us to be fruitful and to multiply, who has given us the sacraments, especially holy marriage in this regard, uh, for the continuance of the race and for the sanctification of the couple. The Holy Father, Pope John Paul II, has mentioned in his 25th Catechesis, man and woman, he created them, a theology of the body, the sixth commandment of the Decalogue, thou shalt not commit adultery. And so we're reminded that the Sermon on the Mount takes it to the next level. The Holy Father didn't cite the Beatitudes here, but we know that they're applicable. Blessed are the pure of heart, for they shall see God. And we know that each, the husband and the wife, the man and the woman, are made to the image of God. The nuptial embrace should lead us not only to the generation and education of children, but also to the vision of God, not only in the hereafter, but even in the here and now. For elsewhere in Scripture, we are told that we cannot love the God we cannot see if we do not love the neighbor we can see. In three different passages of this 25th Catechesis, our Holy Father Pope John Paul II speaks to us about 
anthropology. He speaks about an ethical and an anthropological sense in which this passage from the Sermon on the Mount can be approached. He speaks about the explicit anthropological content of this passage of the Sermon on the Mount, and he speaks about an adequate anthropology in relation to this passage on the Sermon on the Mount, which he treats in this 25th Catechesis of the Theology of the Body, Man and Woman, He Created Them. So we should look at each of those. The anthropological sense of the passage refers to what can we know about the human being, the human person, anthropos, the study of man, based on this passage of sacred scripture. It speaks to us of the dignity of the person, the dignity of the one who looks and the one who is seen, the object of sight, to be seen as a temple of the Holy Spirit, to be seen as another self, to be seen as an heir, a citizen of heaven. This is part of the anthropological sense of this passage of the Sermon on the Mount, the ethical sense, the good we should be doing, the evil we should be avoiding. In this case, for lust to be absent from our heart, for our desires to be pure. And so that anthropological sense echoes also in the anthropological content of the passage, that we diminish ourselves when we diminish the other by the way we look at each other. We're made less as we make them less. And an adequate anthropology, this reminds us that the human person is not just so much sodium and so much hydrogen and so much oxygen. We are not materialists. The Holy Father, Pope John Paul II, was not a materialist. Yes, we have our bodies. And yes, the body is part of the good creation. But we're more than that. And we're more than just the here and now. We have a destiny which is heaven. And when we sin, we change directions. We change our trajectory. We don't go where we're supposed to. An adequate anthropology reminds us that we are made in the image and likeness of God. That's what the Lord is getting at when he speaks in the Sermon on the Mount. He wants our desires to be noble, to be holy, to be chaste, to be pure. Because God is all holy and all pure, Christ Jesus is the model of chastity for all. This is part of an adequate anthropology that Christ reveals not only God to us, but us to ourselves. Homo perfectus. Christ is the perfect man. In the original translations of these conferences by the workers at L'Osservatore Romano, the Italian newspaper, the Vatican newspaper, the word which Professor Waldstein has rightly translated as desire was inconsistently translated and erroneously translated most of the time as lust. There is a lustful desire, but not all desire is lustful. It's a very great correction that Professor Waldstein has offered us. And it plays a key part in this 25th catechesis on the theology of the body, man and woman, he created them. There are two passages which are specifically striking to me in this catechesis, and so I'll reread them again. A look of desire directed toward one's own wife is not adultery in the heart precisely because the man's relevant interior act, the desire, refers to the woman who is his wife, in relation to whom adultery cannot take place because adultery is having sex with a woman who's not your wife, with a man who's not your husband. This is not to say that there might not be a pure or a chaste or a noble embrace. That's another question. But it wouldn't be adulterous. It would just be, dare you say, just, immodest, impure, not right. So we want to have pure intentions and pure actions. 
We want our desires to be noble and good and true. The other passage, which I thought is worth rereading with a little explanation, is this one from the 25th Catechesis on the man and woman he created them, Theology of the Body. If the conjugal act as an exterior act in which the two unite in such a way that they become one flesh is legitimate in the relationship between the man in question and the woman who is his wife, then also the interior act in the same relationship is analogously in conformity with ethics. So the Holy Father in this passage is making a distinction between the interiority and the exteriority. And so the exteriority is the nuptial embrace to make love. The interiority, the desire of the heart. And what he's teaching us here is that when a husband and wife are married and when they engage in making love in the nuptial embrace, this exterior act is legitimate when they are the husband and wife. And if the exterior part is right, the interior act analogously in conformity with ethics. To be in conformity with ethics is to say it is right, it is good, it is fine, it is not a sin. It would be interesting to look and see what so many of the learned commentators of the Holy Father's writings have thought about this passage. I am not that familiar with them, so I'll have to look myself as well. In this 25th Catechesis on the Theology of the Body, Man and Woman, He Created Them, Pope John Paul II mentions a metaphysical category four times at least, and that is time. He mentions the time in which the Sermon on the Mount was first uttered, even before it was recorded by St. Matthew. That is one time. Then he mentions the immense expanse of past time, time before the Sermon on the Mount, or time before we heard that there was a Sermon on the Mount, or before we heard there was a theology of the body, the past time. And then he speaks about an equally vast expanse of future time, time which is not yet arrived. Like our time when we're having these conferences was the future when our Lord was speaking the Sermon on the Mount or when St. Matthew was recording the sacred text or when the Holy Father was speaking his conferences. The last category of time our Holy Father mentions in this 25th Catechesis on man and woman he created them in theology of the body is the present, is the contemporary time, and that is the time of our lives. Some people have a nostalgia, oh, it was better in the apostolic age, oh, it was better in the medieval period of the church or in the fathers of the church period from 100 to 700 AD. But in point of fact, the time which the good God has given us is the best time because that's what God gave us, and God does not give us garbage. Even as God has not created garbage, he has created us well, marvelously. And he's given us so much time in which to work out with fear and trembling our salvation. He's given us so much time in which to hear his word and to act upon his word, to worship him in spirit and in truth, in time, even as we long for eternity, that day without end, which is heaven. When a husband and wife speak their vows, it's at a time, but there was a time before they spoke those vows, that would be their past, and as they approach anniversary after anniversary, they have a different past, a past together, and they look forward to the future. Before the day of the wedding, they look forward to that moment when they exchange their vows. They look forward, future time, to the birth of their first child or the next child. They look forward, future time, 
to a ripe old age, surrounded by family and friends. The eternal God entered into time when Mary said yes to the greeting of the angel, Hail, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Mary said yes in time. Time is not insignificant. This program is 28 minutes 30 seconds, and we cover so many important issues relating to time and eternity, to our faith, to our reality, body and soul composites that we are. And that's why we're so grateful that our Holy Father, Pope John Paul II, went to the trouble to present these Wednesday catechesis in Rome, and that the daughters of St. Paul saw fit to publish them. Professor Waldstein saw fit to well translate them. The Holy Father speaks of a threefold meaning in this 25th catechesis on man and woman. He created them, a theology of the body, and we've seen some of them before already in preceding catechesis. He speaks about the perennial meaning. He speaks about the spousal meaning. He speaks about the generative meaning. The perennial meaning of these words means their timeless truths. This is the reality. This is what our Lord meant when he said not to covet your neighbor's wife, not to look upon another with a lustful desire, a reductive desire. Why? Because each of us, man and woman, made in the image of God, in the likeness of God, to be respected. The spousal meaning refers to how these truths relate to holy marriage, to holy wedlock, to that sacrament of service, which is marriage. There is a spousal meaning of the body, the husband for his wife and the wife for her husband. And what God has joined, the generative and the unitive aspects of holy marriage, no one should rend asunder. No one should tear apart. The generative meaning of these words of sacred scripture and of our Holy Father's catechesis reminds us of the primary end of marriage, as the Holy Father will say later, is bringing to birth new children, each of us children of our parents. The generative meaning to generate, to give life, to look upon another with a reductive desire to commit adultery in one's heart, this is not a life-giving glance, this is a destructive glance. But our Lord looks upon us, each of us, with love, not only from the height of the cross, but even from the Father's right hand. He who was once crucified, who is now glorified, who is risen and alive, calls us to live and move and have our being in him. These are the perennial, spousal, generative meanings of these words, which our Holy Father has entrusted to us even as the Eternal Father has entrusted us with our saving faith. By way of review, it's good for us to remember we're in Chapter 2 of the Holy Father's Great Work. Chapter 2 is entitled, Christ Appeals to the Human Heart. And we've seen four different aspects of the Sermon on the Mount. Whoever looks to desire its ethical meaning, the anthropological meaning, and further dimensions of that passage from Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. In our next program, we'll begin looking at the man of concupiscence. But all of this has presupposed the earlier words of Christ from Matthew 19, verses 3 through 8, when the Lord appealed to the beginning, the beginning of Genesis, the beginning of the human race, when 
Adam walked in the cool of the evening with the Lord God, recognizing that he was unlike any of the other creatures of the field or birds of the air or fish of the sea. And finally at last he found bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh, the original unity of man and woman, and how they were naked without shame. Shame entered the world through sin, and we'll see more of that in our next program. God has given us not only the gift of faith and grace, life in him, but also the gift of existence, our being in the world, our being in his image. The Holy Father spoke to us about knowledge and procreation. Adam knew his wife. The Lord knows us intimately from the inside out, better than we know ourselves. And thanks be to God, God has revealed himself to us in the fullness of time in the person of Jesus Christ, his only Son our Savior and Lord and brother, like us in all things but sin. For Christ reveals not only God to us, but us to ourselves. Until next time, God bless you.